The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa, your host. And today, Pedro Almeida, CEO and co-founder of MindProber, is joining me. Welcome, Pedro. Hi, Seema. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited. I said your name correctly. Is that right? Yes, it is Almeida. Yes, Phew. yes. It was yes. perfect. It was perfect. Yes. You. Thank you. It is a challenge. The first challenge usually is yeah. for people to, uh, to actually be able to, to say my name. So yeah, you passed with distinction. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining me today. You're doing some very interesting things. And, you know, I just love to get a sense of your background. Obviously, we'll talk about MindProber and what you're doing, but give us a sense of your background and how you got here. Sure. So I have studied psychology at the university. So I did social psychology um, okay. with a very strong emphasis on uh, market research. Nice. But I sort of had a, a mixed path, you know, still as an undergrad, I started working as a, as a research assistant on a cognitive neuroscience lab. So small lab that was just starting back then, which then grew to be a quite, a quite big lab. So I've always had a sort of mixed career. I did social psychology. I did my internship in social psychology. After I graduated, I became a consultant in market research, while at the same time pursuing my research career on cognitive neuroscience. So more specifically, electrophysiology. Wow. Um, so a field where, you know, a field where you actually study what would people can describe as brainwaves. So yes. using electroencephalography, looking at uh, emotional processing, mostly mm-hmm. um, using electroencephalography. And quite early, my field of, of interest was affective processes, emotion. Okay. And well, populations with some sort of emotion impairment. I was doing a lot of my research was done with psychopathy. And so a lot of my publications were around emotional processing on psychopathy using electrophysiology. So using the techniques from uh, techniques techniques from cognitive neuroscience. So I sort of, I've always combined these two, let's call it these two passions, which is on one hand, the applied, the applied side and the business side, which, you know, everything that has to do with market research. And back then, a lot of market research on the political domain, Yep. but also, you know, electrophysiology, cognitive neuroscience and effective neuroscience, let's call it. So this has always been a sort of a mixed path. Okay, let's just do a little bit of definitions, because I'm sure these are all like second nature to you. But social oh, psychology, yeah. what is that? I think we all know what psychology is, but what's social psychology? Within social psychology, there's various, you know, subcategories. Yep. So my master's was on experimental social psychology. So basically... Sometimes when you think of behavioral economics, a lot of the things that today people discuss in behavioral economics and, you know, system one processing right. and how, you know, persuasion, et cetera, a lot of it, and this is less known, comes from 
experimental social psychology. So right. the first studies on persuasion and, mm-hmm. you know, attitude and attitude change, etc. This all comes, you know, system one, system two thinking. This all comes from classical social psychology from the 80s. And so basically social psychology is a field where, well, you look at social cognition, where you look at social processes. How do people make social inferences? How do people process social information? And this may have to do with social identity. How do I build my social identity? How do I deal with other people's social identities? Very interesting. Uh, how yeah. do I form attitudes? So this is a field which is very, very heavily experimental. It is to a great advantage of students of social, social psychology that, you know, they get on their facts, they get a lot of, you know, on one hand, research methods, on the other yes. hand, statistics, multivariate statistics. So it's a sort of toolkit. When, when you actually do a master's in social psychology, you get this toolkit, which sort of allows you to then go into, let's say, market research and, you know, and understand data and manipulate data and, you know, have an you understanding have that experience. of multivariate statistics, etc. Yep. So that's sort of social, social uh, psychology. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then let's talk about uh, cognitive neuroscience. neuroscience. Cognitive neuroscience tends to be used as a sort of umbrella term. So cognitive neuroscience, and some people, some authors would tell me, hey, you know what? There's cognitive, what you were doing was actually cognitive or affective or social neuroscience. I see. So cognitive neuroscience is a field that overall is worried with, let's call it the neurobiological implementation. Mm-hmm. Let me know if this if this starts up. So if I start, you know, but the neurobiological implementation of cognitive processes. So what happens in the brain when we think, if this is not too... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what happens in the brain when you think, which are the networks which are activated by different mental processes, which are, and you know, and th- this is an umbrella term because, you know, some mental processes are effective processes. So people tend right. to make this distinction between, you know, cold cognition and hot emotion. And so, but but all of these processes are mental processes. And so if you actually look at this umbrella and, and you see what's underlying the umbrella, well, it is cognitive processing, it is effective processing. So emotions, it is social processing. What happens in the brain when we're thinking about social categories and, right. and social identity and we make social inferences. And then there's the behavioral aspect of it, which is, Got hey, it. I'm not so much worried about the black box. I just want to understand, you know, what determines behavior from a, from a neurobiological standpoint. Very interesting. Okay, so obviously I wanted to take a few uh, some time there because all of this yeah. foundation is kind of birthed into MindProber and kind of what you actually do. So tell me, when you and your co-founder started the company, what was the thesis? Yeah, um, so what we wanted to do back then, so this sort of comes, you know, from this mixed background that I have, like yeah, market research and cognitive neuroscience. So so if you think about these two fields, you think about well consumer neuroscience so so, yes. so consumer neuroscience is or some people call it neuromarketing i honestly yeah. hate the term but yeah. how do i apply principles from cognitive neuroscience and take them into business settings and understand right. you know understand whether you know a given message is more or less effective while being yep. informed by what what we know and using the techniques that come from from consumer neuroscience so, so this was sort of the initial gift which, which was hey I started thinking there's actually no consumer neuroscience company in Portugal. So, so there's no companies in Portugal. And I was thinking local back then. So right. this was 2010, 2011. And I was okay. thinking very local. I was looking at the market and, hey, there's no consumer neuroscience 
company in Portugal. So here's an opportunity. I have a big a mixed background. You know, let, let's start a consumer neuroscience company. Yep. And I understand, you know, back then I understood the challenges of doing this. On one hand, you know, very small markets. On the other hand, if I want, hey, let's go, I'll go out and I'll go and compete with the companies in England. I had absolutely no chance because right. I was small guy. Mm-hmm. Well, small boy from small country. This is sorry. And then I understood the hurdles, which is, hey, consumer neuroscience studies were expensive, non-scalable. Mm-hmm. And so back then I started thinking about ways of scaling consumer neuroscience. So how can I make this more agile? How can I make this faster? How can I make this? And I started, so we started, you know, coming up with these ideas about taking it remote and sort of okay. taking it out of the lab and making it a bit more agile and making it a bit more. So so this is 2013, 2012, 2013. We start thinking right. about, hey, how can we actually start getting inputs start getting physiological inputs behavioral inputs from people while they're out of the line while okay um, first while there are 30 people in a room okay and now 15 people 15 people in each room and now you know 15 people but they're not in a room they're not in a central location they're somewhere else and now they're in their homes right and so we started thinking about hey how can we actually build a, a platform that allows me to you know get data distribute it in a distributed way and actually centralize it and synchronize it with something. And I was lucky enough because, you know, this is also serendipity. And I was lucky enough to be sitting on a jury, PhD jury of a student and, and she was doing, and her thesis was around neurofeedback. So okay. uh, manipulating brain waves to, you know, these are, you know, these protocols where you're actually training your brain. So mm-hmm. Actually, being exposed to the feedback from your brain waves, and you're trying to to regulate some rhythms. And the supervisor of this student, uh, which I didn't know him back then, we started chatting, and he is like, "Hey, you know what? I have these students; they're doing neurofeedback. But what I really, so what I aim to do is bringing neurofeedback out of the lab." And so he had this patent ah. of a wireless EEG cap, so okay. a wireless electroencephalography cap. And I started thinking, okay, if this guy can. Because back then I had already understood that the measures that we wanted could not be electroencephalography based because the EEG signal, so what you get from from the scalp, from the head, um, the signal is just very stochastic. It's just very, very noisy. So I needed a cleaner signal. And so that's why when I started thinking about you know, maybe heart rate, maybe galvanic skin response. Right. We'll tell, I'll tell you a little about that okay. in a while. But I started thinking, okay, if this guy can build an EEG cap, which is like super complex, for right. sure he can build a sensor that to capture galvanic skin response and heart rate and, you know, do something robust enough to actually be used in people's homes. So if you can scale. do it with EEG, for sure he can do it with electrodermal activity and heart rate. So I invited him for coffee. So okay. the is I, I invited my, my co-founder and we started chatting and we understood that there were lots of points of, of convergence mm-hmm. there. And back then, I also we also had another co-founder, another Pedro, who since then left the company. But we were, you know, hey, let's build a prototype. And, mm-hmm. and we, what we set out to do is, hey, let's build a, a prototype to actually be able to collect physiological data in scale to synchronize it with something, something Mm -hmm. that people are exposed to in their homes. So Mm -hmm. initially it was something that we would expose the person to and then evolve to whatever the person is exposed to. And let's build a platform that allows whoever wants to do consumer neuroscience. So any market researcher, 
Let's build a company which will allow any market researcher to go to this platform to set up a study. And what we call a study is give me a piece of content or give sure. me th- that you want to get data on and just distribute it to a sample of people who have sensors in their homes. Let's get their data and then let's show it in the platform in a clever way. And so Got that's it. what we sort of started right. doing. So. So obviously you this measurement, the sensor that a consumer has and yeah. the output of what you're getting, you believe is a more robust measurement to understanding people's reactions to a content or new product or like help me understand how you think about that. Yeah. Well, I would when you I don't say want to say better robust, uh, yeah. uh, when I say more robust my you know I would ask you more robust than what so right. uh, so what we do have and what the platform has crystallized into being is a way to access electrodermal activity in okay. scale from people's so collected from people's homes to whatever they're being exposed to and so we just stripped down all the use cases and so we're super focused on electrodermal activity and I'll tell okay. you why and uh, so we so right now we our sensors still collect heart rate we still store heart rate for research purposes we don't okay. display it um, right. because we're still looking at the metric we're not sure about the metric um, but galvanic skin response so electrodermal activity also known as galvanic skin response so I may use the terms yes. interchangeably uh, although they're not exactly the same thing but but this metric is a very sensitive metric to uh, physiological arousal. So okay. if you're getting excited, yes. I will see it on your galvanic skin response. I so, if some ex- so if some external stimulus is important to you, mm-hmm. if you care about a given stimulus, I will see a galvanic skin response. Okay. Um, and so basically what we do is we aggregate galvanic skin responses synchronized by the second with whatever people are watching. And so we have a very, very sensitive measure of exactly what matters to people. Resonated here, Um, yeah. And and so in a world where everyone is right now looking beyond, you know, measures of, you know, how many people are watching a given content, they want to understand the quality of the impressions. This data is a really, really strong signal of the quality of the impression, the quality of the involvement of the content and the person who is being exposed to the content. And so we don't claim that it's a better metric. Mm -hmm. Okay. We claim that that it's a very objective, quantifiable, which is something that and valuable metric when you're actually trying to understand the quality of the impression and the quality of the involvement between viewers or listeners of a given piece of content and the piece of content itself. So very so. interesting. When you say people, you know, you get the measurement when they're exposed to something in their home, is it you're sending content via computer? Like, how do you know what they're looking at? We have all way, a, a sort of ways to synchronize with whatever people are exposed to. So okay. most of our clients, they do uh, live studies. And so okay. basically that means people are watching television live. And we synchronize via audio content recognition. So the way this works is people who are uh, who are our panelists. So uh-huh. they have th- their little sensor, which is just yep. a little device that glues in their hand, and they have a companion app which basically collects audio content. Uh, so does that wow. audio content recognition? So, so it connects audio fingerprints. So I know exactly what you're being exposed to. And then on okay. my side, of course, I'm monitoring a bunch of streamings. So I'm monitoring everything that is actually happening. So I know in which channel you are, and I know exactly in which point of the content you are. So you can be watching on demand, 
as long as I have the content on my side, I'll be able to, to identify it. First of all, it sounds like for the person or the panelists participating, their main task is to keep this sensor on them. Their main task is to watch television. So they forget their that main... they have the sensor. <laughs> right. So they forget that they have the sensor. So the sensor is a, I know there's probably no, no image here, but the sensor is a little thing that just goes in their hand and that's it. So they forget that's that they're it. using the sensor. Yeah. Wow. So they forget that they're using the sensor. And so, you know, we do sessions sometimes, you know, seven hours long. So because wow. people are just watching television, they just yeah. stay watching television. They forget <laughs> they're wearing the sensor. And so we've got, we have this really long sessions, which of course, then we parse out into the different components of exactly what the person is watching. And yes, so that's our main job. So, so our panelists basically are watching television, watching content you know, and getting rewarded for that while putting on, while wearing the sensor. Do you know which content really creates a positive physiological response? So important qualification here. We don't know whether the physiological response is positive or negative. Okay. On the valence side. So this metric is not sensitive. Galvanic skin response is not sensitive to valence. So it's not sensitive okay. to whether something is positive or negative. I see. If it's, if it's important, if it impacts, we'll see a response. You can, I can get a galvanic skin response because you're super happy because right. your football team just scored a goal or because you're super pissed because you're a supporter of the other team. I see. And okay. So, and so we will see the same type of response. Yes. Okay. Um, some of our clients, they actually want to understand valence. For some things, for some specific yes. use cases, we need valence. I need to understand mm-hmm. whether this response is positive or negative. And so in those cases, our platform allows clients to program the app, so the companion uh-huh. app, to become a dial. So people tell Got us, it. I like this moment, I don't like this moment, and then we mix those two methods. And you can correlate uh, it together. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But you're asking, you know, which type of content yeah. creates really, really strong growth. So the most, the highest responses we see, mm-hmm. and we've seen, and, and we have, we've got thousands of hours of content, are to football, to soccer. So Really? Soccer. Yeah. Yes, soccer. Soccer produces outsized emotional of course when we do soccer we we usually do big competitions and we right. do it among fans so so fanship has a really important yeah. uh, aspect here but goals so we we usually look at you know we usually look at at the physiological responses in terms of tears so the highest emotional response they're very very rare we call them tier one emotional responses yeah. we only see them in football so it's like World Cup, we saw a bunch of them. Yes. So they're very, very rare. We've watched them on Game of Thrones. Oh, so, really? <laughs> yes. So, so this is funny. So first episode of the last season of Game of Thrones. Yeah. As everyone was, so as they were entering. Excited to uh, see it, yeah. Jon Snow was returning to Winterfell and he was watching his family. Some huge spikes. That's amazing. Um, and so we, we saw it there. So, But usually it's sports. Usually this really, really huge responses. You see them in sports, but it's, you know, then it is important. One of the things that we do for for lots of our clients is understanding the morphology of the response because Mm -hmm. football is like flat response, flat response, flat response, huge response, right? And flat, 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 huge. There's other pieces of content which have, you know, what we call tier two, tier three responses. So overall they're lower, but then you see, you know, a little bit more, Very, yeah, yeah. So a little bit, so a little bit more variation, yeah. and this is like super important because usually, yeah. what 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 clients usually want to do this is either they want to you know understand how they can build more of these responses or keep people keep viewers overall more engaged and mm-hmm. more understanding what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. work, camera angles, etc. 
or they want to use these moments for sponsorships. So they uh, want to use, hey, so people are super excited. So how many actually opportunities do I have to have my brand, my logo in this moments when people are super the, excited? Fascinating. And, and, and so understanding this gives us a way actually to understand how I want to insert, how I want to activate different brands, for instance, across yes. different sports properties or across different entertainment properties. Lots of our use cases are around that. How do a client, like who in the client side are you typically talking to about this type of approach and methodology? So on one hand, um, the producers. So producers, people who actually build the content and people who yes. actually want to build the content and want to sell the rights and want to sell sponsorship. Here, a lot of sports. So uh, racing companies, understanding camera angles, understanding commentators, understanding... So how do I really build a production to actually have fans engaged and not churn, et cetera? How do I justify? This is an example that I love. It's, I think, my favorite example. uh, And I speak about it every time (laughs) I I want, which is, should I use camera, a helicopter shot? Should I be investing Uh, in renting a helicopter to actually, which is really expensive, to produce helicopter shots during races. And it turns out you should because helicopter shots are really, really engaging. And so on one hand, there's the production element of it. Right. And a lot of the work we do is around the production element. How do I build? How, and then benchmarking, you know, from race to race, from event to event, from match to match, how things are evolving. And then on the other hand, we have the uh, uh, the publishers, broadcasters. So, right. so people who want to sell sponsorship on their shows, people who want to show that the right audiences are engaged with mm-hmm. their content. So, hey, this property, this network is really, really exciting for this type of audience or this niche of the population. So it's not only that I have one or two million people watching or 20 million watching, it's that people are super excited. Engaged. Whereas, yeah. So on one hand, this, so benchmarking properties, understanding how, how properties are actually positioning themselves, but also then, how do I insert sponsors within these properties? How do I activate sponsors in a way to make them adjacent to moments when people are incredibly excited? You know, if I want to justify the first position on an ad break, for instance, right. I can justify it based on two things. I can justify it based on the fact that historically people watch one, two ads and then they switch channel. Right. I can also justify it based on there's a carryover effect from the content to the ad. And so people always respond more to the first to the first position in break because it's more adjacent to the ad. I love that application because you're taking the research, the data to actually, it moves farther to activation in terms of yeah. value of the information that people are purchasing from you and justifies the ROI. So our progression has been, you know, measuring. So we, we used to get, Mind proper, you know, experts in measuring emotions media. And now we're moving towards, you know, experts in measuring and activating. Activating, yep. Based on emotion. Because again, because this is a real, real powerful signal that can be activated in real time because you can just, you know, compute the metrics and we have this real-time API. And so basically you can access it in real time. So if you can access it in real time, you can actually use the metric to activate. And so this is increasingly a use case that we're embracing, which is, hey, now we're using this metric. It's something that we're starting to do and we're I starting to build the roadmap, yep. which is we're now starting to integrate, for instance, into DSPs. And so yep. having our metrics being, yes. you know, and so that's the next step for us. 
Pedro, thank you so much for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and you guys are really doing some very innovative stuff. Thank you so much. It was a a great experience. Look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended. But your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.